0: I want to say that uh, before we uh, turn to God's word this morning, um, one of the big events that uh, happened uh, while we were gone was uh, the overturning of, of Roe versus Wade. And I, I really wanted to be here to have a, a chance to speak to the church uh, about that. So um, before we turn to God's word, I want to, I want to just take a few minutes uh, to, to make some comments. Uh, my wife Shannon, were, we're having breakfast by a pool when our daughter Lucy uh, called us. Our, our daughter's been involved in the pro-life movement, and it was, it was an important moment when she uh, called us to tell us. And uh, I think it's uh, likely the most significant uh, political event in my lifetime that's happened. Uh, certainly the most important uh, court ruling And I know that uh, present in a church like this, um, some of you uh, may be uh, pro-choice, and um, I just want you to know that even though our church is is decidedly a a uh, pro-life church, we are glad that you're here. And uh, we want this to be a topic that can be uh, talked about thoughtfully and and lovingly, and uh, we know that it affects a lot of people's lives, and uh, you are welcome in our community. And uh, part of the reason that I want to address this is because uh, the pro-life movement has uh, largely been led by Christians. Uh, This event has been an enormous answer to many prayers, millions of prayers for decades. And we have uh, numerous people in our church who, by God's grace, have given much of their lives to this effort, people uh, advocating to support uh, pregnant women, uh, physicians working with the pregnancy center, activists helping to inform people about the realities uh, uh, around abortion. And uh, it's been one of the most ecumenical uh, movements in the history of the American church where Protestants and Catholics uh, working uh, uh, together. And I'll tell you the reason why this issue has been so basic for Christians is, um, you know, there's a book uh, written by Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark was a his- historian at the University of Washington for like 40 years, and he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, which talks about how did Christianity go from being just a marginal small group of Jesus followers to the, the dominant um, uh, faith in the Roman Empire in, in just three centuries. And he says two of the key reasons are, one, that the church cared about women, uh, there The church was probably two thirds uh, women in the early church because the church cared so deeply for women, and also the church uh, refused um, to uh, to either abort or expose children, which was a common practice in the Roman Empire and they often brought in children and as a result, the church just grew and expanded and uh and so um Ever since the earliest Christians, the church has been unified and agreed and has the clear position that the child in the womb from conception is an image bearer of God that has rights that must be protected. This is not a fringe Christian belief. This is a core Christian belief. And I think that at this moment in our culture, there are two basic Christian doctrines that I want to point to To guide us as a church in this moment, two very basic Christian doctrines. The first doctrine is this the Apostles' Creed says that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. And I want to start there because you may be here this morning as as someone who's had an abortion, or uh, maybe you're a man who's your girlfriend or your wife has had an abortion. Or you know someone uh, that has had an abortion. Our, our country's had a million abortions a year for the last uh, um, generation. And our culture is filled with men and women who've lost their children to abortion. And the church is a place of grace. We are all sinners who have come to Jesus because his blood shed on the cross for us forgives every sin that we've ever experienced in our lives. And we want you to know that uh, though we are pro-life you will find the offer of grace here in this church. And it's the kind of grace that you will find nowhere else in the world. And the reason I mention that first is because I think the possibility of grace is what allows us to be honest about what's happened in our country. Because alongside the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins is also the Ten Commandments. You know, the basic Christian doctrine is the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments tell us you shall not murder And uh, grace allows us to face honestly the unjust murder of 63 million innocent children over the last generation. We do not live in a righteous nation. Only by the grace of Jesus can we face that truth and turn from it and find healing. And the fight against abortion has now only intensified, of course, in a place like Washington State. And those in our church involved in this work need our prayers and encouragement and support. And even as this is a fight against evil, we need to stay as a church of love and welcome and hospitality and truth and grace. That's who we are. And I'll, I'll tell you during this time, uh, we need to thank God that he's at work and that there's hope for change. Uh, let that encourage us. Um, our deacons are going to be hosting an event in September uh, that's going to be, uh, the, some people are involved in the pro- pro-life movement. We'll, you know, talk about how to get involved uh, in our church. And so we hope that you could be a part of that. And I will tell you this section of Revelation, we're studying the book of Revelation together. And this section of Reve- Revelation that we're studying could not be more perfect for what the Church is facing in our culture right now it's a text that is meant to give us courage and uh, but also a tremendous amount of hope. and so uh, both of which what we we need so um, we're going to turn now to the Word of God uh, to Revelation chapter seven, which is printed for you uh, there in the bulletin, and uh, we're going to read this text and then we'll pray to God and ask that his truth will uh, give us wisdom and guidance so And all the angels were uh, standing around the throne and around uh, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? Nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Praise be to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we praise you uh, that um, we have experienced in our individual lives, we've experienced in, in the events of history in the world, that you alone are Lord. You are the sovereign king. This is your world. And Lord, we are gathered here this morning to worship because we believe that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. Uh, we sing with this innumerable, this a great multitude that we read about in this passage from, from every tribe and language and people, with innumerable angels who sing before you. We are gathered with them because this is our hope. And so, Lord, uh, we need your spirit to encourage us, um, to teach our minds, to strengthen us to be our food. Let your word be um, our food. And so open our hearts now and bind us together as a church as we devote ourselves to you. And we ask this in the name of the Lamb who was slain. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we are uh, studying together Revelation uh, uh, chapter 7. And uh, Revelation uh, 7 is a part of a unit in Revelation, Revelation 4, 5, uh, 6, 7. It kind of ends in the beginning of uh, Revelation chapter 8. And uh, it, these chapters describe the turning point in the history of the world. So the turning point in the history of the world was when the Son of God became a human being in Jesus Christ. He came, he died on the cross and suffered for the sins of the world. He rose from the dead, he conquered death. And then Jesus ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father as the true king of heaven and earth. He's been given all authority in heaven and earth. And so uh, these events describe the turning point from the old age, it was an age ruled by angels, to the new age that has begun now that Jesus is seated on the throne. And so uh, Revelations chapter, Revelation uh, 4 and 5 describes when Jesus entered into heaven, he's described as the lamb who was slain, and when he is enthroned in heaven. And this new king who is in heaven, his first order of business is that he's given a scroll And he opens the scroll. There's seven seals on the scroll, and he opens the seven seals of the scroll. And these seven seals describe the events that immediately happen after Jesus' ascension in the first uh, century of the church. And so, for example, uh, you read this a a couple weeks ago the first four scrolls are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, these four horses come out of heaven and they come uh, into the earth. And one of the things that John Matta pointed out two weeks ago is that if you want to know what these four horsemen are, you got to go back to the book of Zechariah where they're described there. And these horses are basically the horses of God's army in heaven. If you read in, in Zechariah, Uh, The horses in Zechariah 1 are, are, you know, wandering around the myrtle trees in heaven. And Zechariah's like, why are the horses just hanging around the myrtle trees? You know, your people are suffering. Send them out of heaven to come patrol the earth. And so in Zechariah 6, the horses are sent out. And so you read about these horses. You say, what are these horses and these horsemen? Well, Zechariah 10 tells us. Zechariah 10 says, For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. The horses are God's people. We are the horses. And you say, we're the horses. Uh, You know, so essentially what's happening in Revelation 6 is as soon as Jesus is enthroned in heaven, he sends his people to the four corners of the earth. And you say, well, if we're the horses, well, who are the riders on the horses? We're not the riders on the horses. Well, if you go to Revelation 19, Revelation 19 tells us the rider on the white horse is Jesus himself. And actually, I don't have time to go into all four of the horsemen, but I think Jesus is the rider on all four horses. We are the horsemen, and he is the rider. And if you read those passages, you might be kind of surprised to think Jesus is the rider and we're the horses. Because you have, for example, the second horse. This is what it says. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And you think, that's talking about Jesus and us? He's taking peace from the earth and he has a great sword? That is exactly what Jesus says in the Gospels, almost verbatim. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth, but I came to bring a sword. He came to bring division. He's like, I'm going to divide families. People are going to believe in the Gospel. And some of you have experienced that. It's divided your family because you believed in the Gospel. And, um, you know, you think about, you look at the Christians involved in the pro-life movement. Do you think they're creating peace in the earth right now? I mean, have you ever seen such division? Jesus says we should be prepared. That's exactly what's going to happen when his message comes to the earth. Or uh, you take the fourth uh, uh, horse and rider. This is what it says. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And you think, Jesus' name is Death and Hades Go back to Revelation 1. What does Jesus say about himself in Revelation 1? He says this, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He says, I have control over death and Hades. That's what John talked about two weeks ago. He says all the calamity that happens in the world that happens in our life, comes under the sovereignty of the Lamb who was slain, who's enthroned in heaven. He has control over everything that happens in the world. Um, And so uh, you have these four horsemen. And then in the fifth seal, there are the martyrs that are crying out to God. And you read about those five seals, and you realize that's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins with Jesus being ascending into heaven, And the first thing that he does is he sends his disciples to the four corners of the earth with his spirit empowering them. And the first thing that happens is 3,000 people are converted. You know, that's the first horse that conquers. And then immediately there's all this division with the Jews and with the pagans who are, you know, oppressing the disciples and they're putting them in jail and putting them on trial. And then you have um, martyred uh, Stephen and, and James, two key leaders in the church, are martyred very early on. This is describing those seals. And then the sixth seal begins, and it uses this language. And with uh, the sun darkening, the the moon turning to blood, and stars falling from the sky, we've already talked about this in the past, but all of these things Jesus said would happen in the first century. And what they're describing is the changing of the world, the destruction of the old world where the new age, where the Messiah is now king, is beginning. Jesus says this will happen in his generation. And when did that happen? Well, in the 60s of the first century, leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, there was a massive persecution of Jews and Christians. And uh, there was a in, in 66 of the first century, the Jews revolted against the Romans. And the Romans came to punish them. And this was the beginning of the Jewish wars. And Josephus, who's the uh, historian of the first century, said that 1.1 million Jews were killed during the siege of of Jerusalem. And so uh, when you come to Revelation chapter uh, 7, and it says that of the sons of Israel, and actually the the word Israel in Revelation is always used to describe God's people in the Old Testament. It says 144,000 of them will be sealed. And you think about, there's a million Jews in Jerusalem who just a generation earlier, Jesus had come and said, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Don't stay here. And you know some of them probably said, this guy, he's probably, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So they stayed there. And then when they were surrounded by the Romans, what did they start thinking? He was right. They were probably baptized, surrounded by the Romans. And then they were killed as Jewish Christians. It's probably actually 144,000 is probably actually about the number of Jewish Christians who could have been killed during that siege. And, uh, and Revelation um, is written to these first Christ, uh, century Christians preparing to walk through all of this. And it's also written to us. As Jesus is saying, this is the way of Jesus' kingdom. We have to be prepared. This, this is how Jesus' kingdom comes And though that first century generation was unique, there are many parallels to how his kingdom comes throughout history. And so why would they, those Christians in the first century, or why would we give our lives and suffer for Jesus in his kingdom? Well, our passage today is the answer. You have to believe that we, in such a future, that is so good and is so beautiful that the suffering now is worth it. We believe in a future that is so good and beautiful that the suffering now is worth it. And the passage we are studying today is the result of all the turmoil and all the martyrdom. And um, I have to say, with my introduction, I've already used up most of my time. (laughs) So I'm going to be making two brief points about our future that I hope will inspire us to say, we are the horses that God is sending out into the four corners of the earth, and we are the martyrs that we have to expect that if we are following Jesus, he says that we he expects that we'd be willing to follow him to the cross. And these are the two points. What is our future? Two things. That we will walk with amazing people and that we will walk with an amazing God. Our hope that gives us courage is that we will walk with amazing people and we will walk with an amazing God. And I want to talk about those two points. Okay, so first, we will walk with amazing people. And As dark as these passages are in Revelation, there is such an incredible optimism here. Look at verse 9 where it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so Revelation's encouragement to these early Christians who are going to suffer greatly uh, who feel, in many ways, the ways that we do in, in our Christian life, they often feel discouraged. They're like, how is this God working in what we're experiencing in our life? He says, you're going to have a future where there will be a great multitude of people singing before the throne, people with all different kinds of stories, from all different cultures and backgrounds and things that they've experienced, who have had their lives transformed by Jesus. And one of the things that we have to think about is this has already happened, what Revelation 7, you know, and it, you know, this great multitude that you can't number, it's already happened. I mean, statistics say that likely by the end of the first century, probably one in 300 or one in 400 people on the earth were Christians at the end of the first century. In our day, it's now one in three people on the planet are would call themselves Christians. And you, that's already a new, uh, you can't number. And then you think of all the Christians throughout history, and in so many different languages and lands, you cannot number them. That is how great this host is that uh, Jesus has called to himself. And, you know, we feel so small here in Bellingham. You know, we often feel like, are there even other Christians? I remember when I became a Christian, I lived in Bellevue, and I was like, are there even other Christians? I, I didn't grow grown up in the church. And there, Christians around the world feel that way. They feel so small in their cultures. And um, I love this picture of men and women and children from every tribe and people. It's an incredibly racially diverse people. And who doesn't love the thought of being in a worship service like this? I mean, all different kinds of people from from Africa and South America, from Asia and from Europe and, you know, from the Middle East, all over, people all together worshiping um, What? Is there anything that brings a Christian more joy? And I, you know, I'll tell you, I, you know, I mentioned that my wife and I were in Mexico uh, the, the last uh, few weeks, and we were staying at a condo that had a restaurant in it. And we would go down to the restaurant uh, in the mornings to have coffee and read our Bibles. And the waiter, who is, uh, his name is Joaquin, and you know, he would be serving us a lot of the mornings, and, and we had our Bibles sitting there. And he said, oh, you're a Christian. And, you know, he's like, I'm a Christian, too. I believe that. And, and, you know, he's got this broken English, and he was pointing to the guy who was cleaning the pool. And he like, he's like like, we're the two Christians who work here. And so we were like, oh, well, you know, how did you become a Christian? You know, have you always been a Christian? And he said, well, I grew up in Puerto Vallarta, and, uh, and uh, I, you know, I was a teenager, and I, I was living the party life. And, and he said one day he went into this grain shop, and he saw this, this woman working there, and he said, she was so beautiful, and, um, and I went up to ask her if she would you know, go out with me, and she said to me, I only have one love, and that's Jesus. He is my only love. And he said there was just something so different about this woman. She brought him to church. And he said, when he heard the pastor speak, it was like he, it, God was speaking to his heart. And he said, from that moment, Jesus was my only king. And you know, he's raising a family and, he, and he's a part of a church. And of course, Shannon and I are just love connecting. I mean, we've hardly met this guy and this deep bond with him. And actually, it was amazing. We asked him what church he went to. And he says, Oh, I go to a Guatemalan church. And we used to have a Guatemalan congregation just a couple of years ago that met in our building. And it was the same denomination that he's a part of. And I was like, oh, Pastor Mario down the street. I know him. He's a Guatemalan pastor. All these connections. I mean, such joy. Such delight. And this is what God has for us. And, uh, and we thought we just love this guy. And you just think of a multitude of people like Joaquin around the world throughout history and every culture and language and people so incredibly immense and growing. And why are we willing to suffer? That little experience, is just a taste of the joy. That is such joy. Why would we be the horses Jesus is riding into chaos or the martyrs crying out from the altar? We will get to walk with amazing people like Joaquin throughout this life and throughout the life to come. And, uh, and in the, uh, the midst of the chaos, we will find community that like we will find nowhere else. And, you know, what binds together these diverse peoples that are from all different cultures, different backgrounds? Well, verse 10 tells us, And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And, you know, I thought about it. I bet Joaquin's church is really different than our church, culturally really different. And yet, I guarantee you, both of our churches wholeheartedly would say those words. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Amen. Our hearts are united around this confession. And so our future is an innumerable multitude of brothers and sisters who will be gathered around the throne of God with us that And that experience with Joaquin is just a taste of the amazing fellowship and community that God forms among his people as they worship him. We will walk for eternity with amazing people who have been loved and changed by the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. But walking with amazing people is not the deepest joy that awaits our future. And what we also see in this passage is not only that we will walk with amazing people, but second... That we will walk with an amazing God. We will walk with God Himself. And this passage uh, in Revelation 7 actually is a little preview of what you read about in the end of Revelation. There's a lot of parallels there. And you see what it says there in verse 13 now it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, and I love this little exchange where the angel comes up to John and says, who are these guys? And the angel knows who they are. John doesn't know. And it's like the angel saying, this is the question you should be asking me is, who are all these people? And, uh, and the answer is, in the second part of verse 14, it says, And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I know some of you see that phrase, the great tribulation, and wonder, hey, what is the great tribulation? Well, that exact phrase, again, is used by Jesus in Matthew 24. There's a lot of parallels between Revelation and Matthew 24, where uh, Jesus says, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And he says, Immediately after that, just a few verses later, Jesus says of that great tribulation, that exact same phrase, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So again, the suffering that he's describing is what happened in the first generation of his first disciples who were sharing in the suffering that he endured on the cross. But I don't think it's wrong for us to think that just as Jesus' kingdom comes to the earth, that as Jesus' kingdom comes to the earth, there have been many tribulations of God's people throughout history. I mean, actually, you know, 200 years later in the Roman Empire, when Diocletian was the emperor, there was brutal persecution. This is right before Constantine became the emperor, you know, who was a believer. Uh, Diocletian, a terrible persecution against Christians. Or, or, you know, in the Middle Ages, you know, as Islam uh, spread through the Middle East and, and took over northern Europe, many Christians were slaughtered. Or uh, during the time of the Reformation, many people were uh, uh, professing their faith in the gospel and they were burned at the stake or they were killed in France and and in England and other parts of Europe. And and in the last century, under the Soviet bloc, many Christians were persecuted. In our day, you know, in the underground church in China, Uh, You know, under uh, Hindu nationalism in India, there are brutal persecutions happening. There are great tribulations happening around the world, even in our day. And the Lord assures those who go through this tribulation, this is their reward. This is the reward. And I really want us to appreciate how deeply this says that our reward is God himself. There are many blessings awaiting us in heaven. You know, we're going to have health, and we're going to have community, and we're going to have people, and we're going to finally be who we are, and we're going to be free from sin. The greatest reward is God himself. And you look at verse 15, what it says. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither uh, neither thir- uh, thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. It's a beautiful picture. of Psalm 23, where it's the, Jesus is the Lord, who's the shepherd, and you know makes us lie down in green pastures and leads us beside still waters. But I want to focus on the last phrase of this whole passage. These great words. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God himself will wipe away the tears. This same phrase is repeated in the end of Revelation. And it struck me how deeply personal this verse is, that God himself is going to come face to face with each one of us. He knows us. He'll see our tears. He'll see our sorrows. He cares about the individual tears of his people. And, you know, there are wounds that so many of us carry throughout our lives. And we, we go to pastors and we go to counselors and we go to, you know, friends to try to find comfort, to try to have the tears and the sorrows wiped away to be freed from them. And those people are a blessing to us. And, but really, they, they never really take away the tears themselves. They give us enough comfort so that we can walk through life and we can, we can still love other people and we can serve God and we can manage but I want to tell you, as amazing as the people are that we will walk through this life with and in the life to come, none of them truly knows us. No one truly knows You know, I, thought, I think about that of my own wife who knows me better than anyone on the planet, and yet she can't see into my soul. And I don't totally know her either. And I realize I don't even totally know myself. I don't even know what my own tears are. Some of you feel that way. I don't even know what my sorrows are, the things that give me grief and and heartache in my heart. I can't even name what those things are. God is the only one who knows. And what's amazing is we're not only going to walk with people. We're going to walk with the one who actually can look to the deepest parts of our soul. And he says he will wipe away every precious tear to him. This is our greatest reward, is God himself. He's the only one who fully and deeply knows us. And this is the great story that we're a part of, that Jesus calls us to be the horses that he rides on into battle. And, and, and by the way, you know, our battle is not, we don't have swords and bombs. Our, our weapons are we pray, we speak the truth, and we love our neighbor. And that will cause chaos. That will turn the world upside down. But those are our three things. We pray, we worship we speak the truth, and we love our neighbor. And that's the, the, those are the kind of horses that Jesus rides into battle, and he calls us to be martyrs and to be willing to follow him to the cross. But Jesus promises us amazing people to walk through this life with and amazing people to walk with in heaven. But even more, Jesus himself is the amazing God who walks with us now and will one day wipe away our deepest tears. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are amazed at these incredible words. Uh, We wonder, there are no other words of all the books that have filled libraries around the world throughout history. There are no words like your word that have such power that speak to the deepest questions of our lives, the deepest questions of our world. And Lord, uh, we long uh, to be your disciples, people of courage who, um, who, who wait for the Lord. And, um, and we trust in you um, that we uh, are not afraid of, of the suffering that comes with following you. And, and yet, Lord, we need the assurance of your love and your presence. That, and we need the, the people around us and the community. We need your grace. And so may your Holy Spirit, with these words, um, strengthen us to do your work, where, uh, wherever that may be. May they strengthen your people in every land. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we confess our faith through the Apostles' Creed. This is printed on page 13 of your bulletin. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. The third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of